For 381 years, the islands of the Philippines were occupied by conquistadors, missionaries, merchants, soldiers, spies, and colonizers of every stripe. That's 381 years of history, and we're here to talk about the stories lost in between the cracks of the centuries. This is Occupy Pilipinas, Episode 1, When Manila Was Brutal, Bloody, and British. It is the year 1762. Imagine you're living in Manila, and you wake up on a dismal September morning to find an entire invasion force anchored off Manila Bay. The fleet of 13 British ships had arrived the night before, catching everyone in the city by surprise. The next morning, Lieutenant Fernando Arcaya, carrying the Spanish flag, boarded the British flagship, which was called the Norfolk. He demanded to know what the fleet was doing anchored off the coast of Cavite. When Lieutenant Arcaya boarded the ship, what he saw would have surely confirmed the most dreaded suspicions of hostile intent. The firepower brought by the invasion force was immense. The Norfolk alone, captained by Admiral Samuel Cornish, was a powerful frigate, built just five years before, that bristled with 74 cannons. The smallest ships in the fleet had at least 20 guns. Arcaya would have also seen the ranks of soldiers, elite grenadiers with their mitered caps and muskets, engineers and pioneers equipped with entrenching tools or accompanying the artillerymen, marines fixing bayonets, all of them assembled on the decks of the British fleet. Arcaya returned to Intramuros with a message from the British commanders. In their demand for surrender, the English commanders sounded polite, almost regretful. The Spanish king had forced their hand, they said. Now, by the authority of their king, they had sailed to these most distant dominions to conquer Manila, proving once and for all that nothing was, quote-unquote, beyond the reach of His Majesty's just displeasure. However, the letter went on, the British forces would very much like to avoid the bloodshed that would ensue if the Spaniards refused to surrender. Underneath, the letter was signed, Your Most Obedient Servants, S. Cornish, William Draper. Over the course of its colonial history, Manila had faced down Chinese pirates and Dutch privateers, but had never faced a foreign invasion of this size before. Around 556 men were stationed to defend Manila with 80 cannoneers, an untrained bunch that the Spaniards knew would never stand up to veterans who were accustomed for some years to fighting in India, as a French writer and astronomer, Hilam Lajanti, described the invaders. Most of the garrison, even the soldiers who had come from Mexico, had never even fired a gun. Still, the assembled Spaniards made their decision. History has shown the world that Spaniards know how to die like good men for their god, for their king, and for their fatherland, said Acting Governor General Archbishop Manuel Rojo in his reply to the British. They would defend Manila to the last man. The English plan to invade Manila had been gathering force over the past year. The mystique and necessary secrecy of the galleon trade from Acapulco to Manila had turned the city into a legendary place of unimaginable wealth. 
a reputation amplified by the complete ban on all outside European trade in the colony. The British could only sneak inside Manila by posing as translators in Muslim trade ships or through the thriving black market. For the British, the Mexican silver was the end goal for any possible invasion. Silver is the produce of the trade carried on from Manila to America, argued William Dalrymple, a merchant who was trying to establish a trade outpost in Sulu. A secret proposal of the time called Manila a proper object of war for its known wealth and opulency. To seize control of the silver, Manila would need to fall. In addition, Dalrymple argued that if the Spaniards would lose control of Manila, America would open her arms to more imports from China and India. Using the recent declaration of war against Spain as a pretext, the British Admiralty convened in London on January 1762 and decided that they would assemble an invasion force from India to take Manila as well as the great shipyard of Cavite. In Madras, the leader of the British expedition, Brigadier General William Draper, gathered a multi-ethnic army composed of the 79th Regiment plus 600 sepoys, a company of kafirs, one of Topazes or Asian Christians, and one company of pioneers. Manning the fleet were numerous Lascar sailors, as well as 550 others plus 270 marines. Draper also noted that they had the precarious assistance of around 350 French soldiers, captured by the British in the ongoing Seven Years' War and enlisted into the expedition against their will. All in all, the invasion force numbered around 6,800 men. The assembled force was smaller than Draper had hoped. Many British officials in India were opposed to the plan, as it would interfere with the lucrative black market trade they already had with Manila. However, Draper wasn't looking to conquer the entire colony. In her 2003 book, When Britain Ruled the Philippines, Shirley Fish wrote, It was evident from the start that if they planned to seize and occupy the entire archipelago, their efforts to do so were quite anemic in scope. The official British aims were actually much more modest. Capture Manila and Cavite? Wrangle with the Spaniards at the negotiation table to get trade concessions and outposts in Mindanao, if not the entire southern island itself, and of course, get massively rich in the plunder. On the evening of September 23, 1762, the British invasion began. Against the punishing surf, three frigates pulled as close as possible to the south of Intramuros. By attaching a spring rope to their anchor line, and relying on one heavy anchor at the bow, the frigates could swing their flanks to the powerful winds and train their broadsides on the shore. At their sides, three divisions of soldiers, with Draper among them, boarded longboats and prepared to row. Their landing spot would be a beach that they called variously Malata or Morata. We now know this place as Malate. A number of Spanish and Filipino troops both cavalry and infantry were already waiting to repulse them. The frigates, however, laid down withering covering fire and scattered the defenders. The waves were rough, 
three landing boats were overturned. As the British soldiers swam ashore, they found that some of their ammunition had been ruined by the sea. Still, no one drowned. The landing force got into formation and advanced into Malate, occupying the church and some surrounding houses. As the British marched in, the residents fled, burning their houses behind them. That first night of combat, this was the extent of their resistance, even as the invaders kept watch under the cover of arms. In the dark, the flames burned on. The next morning, the Spanish galley San Gertrudis sailed into Manila Bay and came upon the British fleet. Admiral Cornish ordered a frigate and four armed boats to intercept. Jose Cerezo, captain of the San Gertrudis, immediately realized the danger they were in. They had sailed all the way from Mexico, nearly half a year's journey away. Stored in the hold of their ship was silver, approximately worth 30,000 Spanish dollars as one account has it. More importantly though, Cerezo and his crew knew the location of the great Spanish galleon, the Filipino, a majestic 2,000-ton vessel newly returned from Mexico, loaded until its floor decks groaned with almost $2.5 million worth of silver. At the moment, the Filipino was docked off the coast of Samar. The San Gertrudis had accompanied the galleon from Acapulco, but had gone ahead to Manila to fetch a pilot skilled enough to pilot the Filipino through the rough San Bernardino Straits. The galleon's crew, of course, had no idea that a hostile force had entered the archipelago. Cerezo knew his vessel stood no chance, but galleys, small, light, propelled by both oars and sail, were nimble and built for the coast. Cerezo ordered his crew to stick close to the shore, firing their swivel guns and mortars in a desperate attempt to lose their pursuers. In the shallow reefs and rocks, the San Gertrudis soon ran aground. The 80 passengers and sailors aboard the ship jumped overboard, swimming for the shore as the boats closed in. Soldiers boarded the vessel with no resistance, capturing Cerezo and two other Spaniards who had stayed behind. One of them, Antonio Tagle was the nephew of Archbishop Rojo. Needless to say, the silver was also looted, the first jackpot of the British invasion of 1762. One of the escaping Spanish soldiers, Captain Juan Sotomayor, reached the shore. With him were letters from Cerezo. He had been instructed to deliver the documents to the Governor General and to warn him that the Filipino was in danger. Meanwhile, in Malate, two contingents of British soldiers marched out of the church and into the blinding rain. The first headed south to capture the old powder works or polverista, which had been recently abandoned by the Spaniards. Inside, they found a good store of weapons. They also converted that fort into storage for their supplies. Meanwhile, the second group, composed of around 200 men, marched into the village of Nuestra Señora de Guía, just 900 yards from Intramuros' walls. We now call this little hermitage, or hermita in Spanish, as ermita. They occupied the large church and turned the priest's house into headquarters. 
The leader of the Ermita Offensive was Colonel Monson, a man that Draper would later commend for consummate skill and bravery in the reduction of Manila. As Monson and his men moved, they faced more spirited opposition. Heavy cannon fire came from the Baluarte de San Andres, the bastion along the southwestern wall of Intramuros, which at present faces the National Museum. It forced the soldiers to continually take cover inside the village houses. Meanwhile, roving groups of Philippine defenders attempted to set fire to more structures. With the monsoon whipping the sea into a frenzy, the landing of their artillery and stores became very hazardous. One of Draper's lieutenants drowned in the landing, but more reinforcements were able to come ashore. By the end of the day, Draper's soldiers had advanced as close as 300 yards to the city, occupying Santiago Church. Inside the city, Mother Paula, the head of a home for girls called the Beaterio de Santa Rosa, told the city fiscal about a vision that had come to her. The British, she said, would fail and convert to Catholicism. The fiscal, Francisco Leandro de Viana, reported this to the archbishop. He told him, We have nothing to fear. The English are going to be converted to our faith, and we shall drink excellent wine in their expense. The friars encouraged stories about Mother Paula's vision. Their churches may have been occupied and desecrated, but here was proof that God was on their side. If their defense failed, it would mean the destruction of Christianity in the islands, as Rojo put it. Many priests and religious brothers volunteered to join the militia. Later, Mother Paula had another vision of St. Francis standing on the Intramuros walls, cord in hand, defending the city against the invasion. This podcast was written and created by Leo Mangubat for Summit Books, with recording and engineering by Ayus and Anya Reyes, and production by Gene Saturnino. It is based on my series of historical articles originally published in Esquire, Philippines. For these episodes about the British invasion of Manila, I based this narrative primarily on the journals of Archbishop Manuel Rojo and Brigadier General William Draper, along with reports from Admiral Samuel Cornish and Captain William Stevenson, an engineer in the English Army. A few parts have been embellished for dramatic purposes. See the podcast description for a complete list of line-by-line sources. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on the Summit Books Facebook page and SoundCloud account. Thank you for listening in and check back next week for a new episode of Occupy Pilipinas.